0: For many of us, the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus Christ, is familiar. And because it is familiar, we have a tendency to think that we know not only what happened, but that we've already gained many of the treasures that God has given us in His Word. But I've discovered in year after year of times exploring and studying the Christmas story that there is always more to learn. There are hidden treasures. And that's why over the last uh, few weeks, we've tried to look at the Christmas we we never knew and discover some things like about Jesus' family tree, his Christmas tree, and some things about Joseph. And today we're going to look um, at least to a degree at the visit of the wise men of the Magi Uh, But first, as we do that, one of the things that is incredibly important for us to recognize is that what Matthew is doing here is he is showing us the fulfillment of many, many prophecies. Now, prophecy is important because it gives us a way to measure the authenticity of a claim. In the Scripture, if you were a prophet, you had to be right 100% of the time. If your prophecy did not come true, it proved that you were a false prophet because God had not told you what you said He told you. But if it came true, then it would give evidence and point to the fact that, yes, God had revealed to you through His Holy Spirit His will and what He was going to do. And the prophecies that we have um, about Jesus' birth were written hundreds of years ahead of time. Now for us to really get a grasp on that, let me, let me illustrate it this way. How many of you here have been struck by lightning? Anybody? Who? Where? We got what? what? Right Wow, you're looking good, Katie. OK. <laughs> it's possible. OK? It's, it's possible. Your odds of getting struck by lightning are about one in a million. But that means that there are people who get struck by lightning, right? Well, here in just the first two chapters of Matthew, um, Matthew is telling us, he, he uses the phrase spoken by the prophets or written by the prophets five specific times in chapter one and two to talk about fulfillment of very specific, precise prophecies. But he actually alludes to 11 different prophecies that are here just in the first two chapters. Now, Jesus himself, in addition to his birth, that's just concerning his birth. When we begin to look at his life, we look at his ministry, we look at his death and his resurrection, there are over 300 specific prophecies that Jesus fulfilled completely. So that would be like the odds of a person not only being struck by lightning, and knowing where they were going to be struck by lightning, but to be struck by lightning 300 times and have it written down hundreds of years ahead of time where they would be when they would be struck by lightning each of those 300 times. Do you begin to get a feel for how amazing it is? It's almost like God's God, and he knew what was going to happen with his son. Well, I've listed some of the prophecies here in the top of your sermon notes, because it's important for us to reinforce our faith with the truth of God's word. And in fact, that's what we see happen with the wise men. And so, I've listed some of those there, and we're not going to we're not going to look at each of them. But there are some specific things that pointed to who the savior, who the Messiah was going to be, that he would be the heir of David's throne, as predicted in Isaiah. That he would be born of a virgin, as predicted in Isaiah chapter 7. That he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. That he would be the seed of a woman, which is a very specific one. We're going to look at that one and born of a virgin together for just a moment. His star, the star of a king that would come and rule, um, was predicted in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. He would be born in Bethlehem. There would be gifts that would be brought to him. Royalty would come and worship him. Not only would he be born in Bethlehem, but he would come out of Egypt. And not only would he come out of Egypt, but he would also be called a Nazarene. Three very separate locations that would refer to the early days of Jesus' life that helped narrow down who he was and make it very clear that the identity of of the Savior is Jesus Christ. The prophecy says that a virgin shall conceive in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and bear a son. And it goes forth, it's a sign that God gives, it's very specific. But that sign has its beginnings all the way back in the book of Genesis. And so we're going to look there for just a moment because God, at the very beginning, when mankind sinned, he also provided a a ray of hope saying there's going to be one who will come who is going to set right what sin has done to us, what we have done to ourselves in our rebellion. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, and I'm going to read this from the New American Standard Bible because it's... It's the best word-for-word um, interpretation that we have in English um, as far as precision of the language. It says this, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is after she ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in direct disobedience to the Lord. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you more than all the cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and the dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, I will put strife between you, this is between, um, this is the serpent is representing Satan, between you and the woman, between Satan and humanity, and between your seed and her seed. Now, the word in Hebrew for seed is the word zerah. And maybe it says in your translation, it may say offspring, which is good. It's a good translation, but it misses the fact that it's singular. It is a single seed. The seed of a woman would be the one that it goes on to say, he shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So it was a prophecy there in the beginning that a seed of the woman would eventually bring someone who would crush the enemy. That's what the prophecy was was talking about. And it's very significant because from the very beginning, after Adam and Eve sinned, God began to give signs and evidence of how He would solve the problem of our sin, that He would send a sinless one. He would send Emmanuel, God with us, to be our Savior. Now, the reason that that's so significant is because Um, Normally, in, in the way human physiology works, the seed comes from the man, and the woman receives that seed and gives birth. But he says, the seed of a woman. This is pointing to that virgin birth that he will later clarify even more in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And the reason that's so important is because our nature for sin, our likeness of sin, is past from father to child. But Jesus Christ, His Father, is the Holy Spirit. His mother was Mary. He was virgin-born, absolutely sinless in His nature. And in all of His life, He proved that He was sinless. Only He could be our Savior. That's why this prophecy was so significant. And in chapter 1, Matthew makes a point To point these things out time and time again, that the one coming, the one who would be our Savior, would be perfect. He would be sinless. He would be born of a virgin. Well, let's now go and look at the wise men or the magi. Matthew chapter 2, as we read earlier, after after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now, the first question we should probably be asking is, who are these guys? Because they've, they've traveled what um, likely was at least a couple of hundred miles uh, we don't know for sure exactly where, where they were from. We can get a pretty good idea, as we'll explore here in the Scriptures. Um, but who were they? Well, the actual word, um, many of your translations will say magi rather than uh, wise men, and that's, that's the word in the Greek language. Magi was the name for priests and wise men among the Medes and Persians and Babylonians. The magi specialized in the study of astronomy and of signs, and they were frequently the ones that rulers would consult in making decisions. They were royal counselors, and it's interesting. The meeting that we have here in Matthew chapter two is these royal counselors from from the um, from the east. Um, they come, and they come to Herod, who is the the king over Judea, and he consults not with magi but with the chief priests, the scribes of of uh, Judaism to find out where the Savior would be born, where the Messiah would be born. So we have a gathering of the wise men of the East and the learned men of the West, but only one group came to worship, and that was the Magi. So, you know, as I look at this, because I want to inquire and look a little more deeply, I'm wondering, why did these guys travel simply because they saw a star? Shouldn't that be a good question that we should ask? I mean, I've seen a lot of stars. I've seen some stars I haven't noticed before. I don't study them like they did, but there was something about that that they were preparing and looking um, for this star. Now, if they came from Babylon, which would be modern-day Iraq, which in that area, maybe Syria, Syria. why is it that they would be looking for the king of the Jews? Why would they even know about it? I mean, think about it. If you um, had a sign for something that was happening in a country that maybe you'd never been to before, what would it take to move you to travel several hundred miles by foot or by camel to go and check out and find out where someone was born? It would take a lot, wouldn't it? There'd have to be a compulsion. There'd have to be something inside of you that says this is incredibly important. They weren't going to see someone who was already a king, who was already grown up, who could provide maybe some good resources for them, a good political connection. They're going to visit a baby. They know it's a child that they're going to visit, but they've been looking for something specific. How is it that they knew to even look for him? Well, I believe a good indicator is what we find in the book of Daniel. Daniel was one of the captives of, of Israel who was taken off to, to Babylon, and there he, he rose as an advisor and ultimately became the head of the Magi in Babylon. We see this in Daniel chapter 2, verses 46 and 48. Nebuchadnezzar was the king who had attacked Israel and Jerusalem and had led away Israel uh, into captivity. And it says this in verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. See that, how important that is? The revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery to me. God, uh, Daniel had prayed for, for God to give him an answer to a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had. God gave that answer and, and through Daniel revealed it to Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel becomes the head of the Magi. And his reputation is that the God he serves is the one who is the God of gods, the king of kings, the one who reveals mysteries. So under his leadership, the wise men would have discovered and learned things about Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God who reveals mysteries, the God who is the God of gods and the one who establishes kings. So way back in their history, hundreds of years before, they had been hearing about from the writings of Daniel and from his influence about this God that they knew very little else about. So why did they come to Jerusalem? What was it that stirred them from just having heard about this God who, um, from someone who had been the head of the Magi hundreds of years before? Why did they make the trip? Well, there's a revelation. They saw a star, a general revelation from God. From what little we know of the Magi, we know that they very carefully explored the heavens. They looked for signs in the stars. There are numerous theories as to what this star was. In fact, in the past few weeks, I've read four different books and roughly a dozen articles with different theories about exactly what the star was. And I'm going to tell you definitively exactly what it was. I have no clue. No idea. Some people think it was an alignment of the, of the planets. Some think it was a comet. Some think it was a supernova. Others um, believe that the star was actually an angel. And there's some there is some biblical precedent uh, precedent where that could be. The book of Job talks about how when Job or when God is answering Job, when Job is complaining, God says, "Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when the stars sang together and the sons of God, meaning the angels, um, where they were assembled?" He's talking about, uh, and he refers to the angels as stars. Um, it could have been. Could have been. They're, you know, they're known as their brightness. Remember, these are, these are Gentiles. These are not Jews. And so it may have, a, may have been an angel that made this appearance to them. We don't really know. And the truth is, it doesn't matter. What matters is it got their attention. What was revealed in the sky spoke loudly to them. And the scripture tells us that God did just that. He put evidence, he put his DNA in everything he created to point to who he was and to his plan of redemption. I want you to look at this interesting verse in Genesis chapter one in creation. Verse 14, then God said, let there be lights in the firmaments of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. We understand that our calendar, the reason why today is a new year is because we, the, the earth has made its full orbit around the sun, one year. We understand that months are generally based upon the cycle of the moons, and so the stars in the heavens, the bodies in the heavens, um, are there for seasons, but also for signs, and those signs were being studied by the Magi. They didn't necessarily have all of the Scriptures um, like we have them today. They likely had the writings of Daniel and some other writings that we'll see in just a moment. Um, But they didn't have that. They uh, they didn't have much more beyond that, but they did have a general revelation of God. They were given a general revelation. They saw a star in the heavens. They knew it had spiritual significance. And here is a principle that we see at work frequently. It's a revelation principle. When you have a faith response to general revelation of God, He will lead you to His Word, and His Word will lead you to His Son. If you talk with missionaries all around the world, they may be in places where there is very little access to the Scripture, but there will be individuals, whether it's a vision or a dream, whether it's some other sign, where God is getting their attention, and when they respond by faith, He will begin a chain of events that lead them to His Word, that then leads them to His Son. That's exactly what happens with these wise men. And it's a great missiological principle. They responded to what they knew, that there was a star in the heavens and it was pointing them a direction and they, went, they, they knew that it was, it was about uh, Israel and so they headed to the capital, Jerusalem, and they went to the king because they figured, well, the king should know where the king is going to be born. Sounds logical, right? But what did they do once they got there? Herod consults. the the chief priests and the scribes, and they consult God's Word. When they look at God's Word, they find in Micah very clearly it written that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, a little town, the town of David, but very specific. He would be born in Bethlehem. And so this Response to the general revelation ultimately led them to God's word and led them to Jesus Christ. And they came to worship. You see, in their heart, they came open. Not seeking favor of a king. Not seeking position and opportunity. They would have had to wait till this king grows up for them to have any promise of power. They came specifically to worship. And in worshiping, they presented their gifts to the Lord. Now, why a star? What was it that they saw that prompted them in the first place? This sign in the heaven. I want you to turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 24. In the book of Numbers, we have an interesting Almost confusing account of a prophet who was not Jewish. Um, He was not necessarily even a follower of God because he was a prophet for hire. In fact, his name is Balaam, and Balaam was hired to curse Israel, he was hired to pronounce God's judgment upon Israel and to try to find a way so that they would be defeated. So he's a prophet for for hire. He's not a reputable man. However, God will even sometimes use that which is broken and fallen and sinful in order to reveal his truth. So let's look at what, what happens here in Numbers chapter 24, verses 15 through 17. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God. He knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty. So he's acknowledging where this vision is coming from. He's giving credit to God on high. He's falling down, end of verse 16, falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. This is a revelation not about a person but about God. Do you see what it's saying? I see him, but not now, referring to who he just spoke of, which is Almighty God. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Balaam, even though he was a prophet with the wrong motivation, when he sought the Lord, God revealed truth to him. And the truth said, there will come a day when I will appear, not just a king, but God himself will appear. And when he appears, there is going to be a sign in the heavens, a star in Judah that will represent a scepter, the royal reign that will begin of my presence in this world. Balaam was one of the magi. He came from the same tribe as the wise men that we read about in Matthew. And so the Magi would have had this prophecy of Balaam to say, when this star comes in Judah, it's not just going to be a king. I mean, there are kings everywhere. They could have went any direction to go and find a king. This would be God himself being revealed. That's why they came, and that's why they came to worship. Now, let me give you a little bit, a little bit more of this background so that you understand what's happening here. The Magi, many of them, uh, remember, under Daniel, they were, they were given some truth because Daniel was the head of the, of the wise men. But, like often happens in religion, some false beliefs creeped in over time because... They didn't have a lot of the scripture, and they um, weren't staying true to what they'd been given. And so they began to drift, and ultimately the Magi became followers of Zoroaster, Zoroasterism. And I want to read to you from um, an Arabian historian, Abu faraji and what he says specifically uh, about this group of Magi in the teachings of Zoroaster says this. This is from, um, from the book translated from, from the Arabic Pakak's Abul Farujas, in case you want I know I didn't pronounce that closely, but just pretend like I did. It says this: "To his disciples, the coming of the Messiah, which is the anointed one or Christ, who should be pointed out by a star which should appear in the daytime at his birth." That they should have the first information of his advent. That he should be born of a virgin. And that they should present him with gifts. Because he is the word that made the heavens. This is not biblical revelation. But God will use his truth. And write it into the hearts of people. Now this should give us hope. Because chances are most of us in this room. We don't come from a Jewish lineage. We're Gentiles. And yet God used truth even in the midst uh, of a lot of confusion to point those who would seek him to his son, to his Savior. That's why they came. They had been taught that at one point in time, God would make himself known. And when he came, when he was born as a man, there would be a star. So let's go back to Matthew. When Herod, Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Because they would have told them, not only is a king being born, but here's what we understand this person to be that he's going to be the king of kings. It's going to be God's presence. And so Herod who was consumed with power and who was incredibly corrupt. He was so corrupt that he killed two of his own sons to prevent them from rebelling against him. He was greatly troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born and they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And this is the prophet Micah. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. These three gifts are gifts fit for the one who would come and be the ruler of all. Three gifts With three distinct meanings that point to who the Savior's true identity and role would be. The gift of gold. They brought gold, which represented his royal virgin birth. Jesus was to be born the Prince of Peace, and on his return, he will be crowned the King of Glory. The wise men presented him with gold because gold is precious, it has great value. It is pure, it is enduring, and it represents his position as king, his sovereignty. Sovereignty is a great biblical word that means God has the absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure and purpose. The gold proclaimed Jesus is the king. But his sovereignty requires us to make a decision. Even as Ed said earlier, that we make one decision, we have to decide what we're going to do with God's sovereignty. Will we surrender? Will we bow down and worship Him? Or will we reject Him? When we understand that Jesus Christ is sovereign God, it requires us to surrender our rights because his sovereignty proclaims he is in control and he is worthy of all honor and all praise the wise men gave gold in recognition of his kingship the second gift that they gave was frankincense frankincense is a very costly and fragrant gum distilled from a tree that is found in in persia india and arabia And it's a white resin or gum that is obtained by wounding or piercing the tree until its sap comes out in tears. And it's it's a white substance. In fact, the word frankincense actually um, it means whiteness or purity. And it's highly fragrant when it is burned, and therefore it is it is something that is used in worship. In fact. In Exodus chapter 30, verses 7 and 8, and Leviticus chapter 16, verses 12 and 13, it talks about the importance of frankincense in worship and presenting a sweet smelling sacrifice before the Lord. And it's given the prescriptions of how you are to make this incense and use it. It is a picture of intercession. In fact, let me read this to you from Leviticus chapter 16. Verses 12 and 13. And he shall take, this is speaking of the priest, he shall take a censer full of coals from the fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense, this is frankincense, beaten small and shall bring it inside the veil, so into the holy of holies, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. The incense, the frankincense, when it was burned, was designed to cover over the mercy seat to protect the priest who went in to the holiness of God. The gift of frankincense recognizes that Jesus is our high priest, that he is the one who covers over the judgment that you and I deserve with his presence, with his life, with his purity and so it was an appropriate gift for them to give the wise men brought frankincense to jesus because it represented his perfect sinless life that he was a sweet smelling aroma before the lord and that he would be the one who could intercede for us because he is not only the high king he is our high priest It was given for his sinlessness and his position as our priest. He's the only one who came and lived a perfect, holy life and could go into the very presence of God on our behalf. It represented his divinity and his position as the sinless God-man, our intercessor, our high priest. Finally, there's the gift of myrrh. Myrrh is an aromatic gum that's produced from a thorn brush that grows in Arabia and Ethiopia and it's obtained in the same way as frankincense by wounding the the tree but it's a a very thorny tree and um, it grows about 10 feet tall and when the gum oozes out of the wound it's kind of a pale yellow at first but it turns dark red or even black. It's a color of spilt blood. Whereas frankincense represents sweetness, myrrh is just the opposite. In fact, it's word, the word myrrh means bitter, bitterness. And for the ancients, myrrh was considered to be a favorite perfume um, because it is said to keep its fragrance for several hundred years when it's kept properly. And it was therefore used... Primarily for burials. In order to prevent the smell of decay of a body that had died. It was a preservative. It also had medicinal qualities. Sometimes mingled with wine to form a drink. Such a drink was given to our Savior, offered to him when he was on the cross. Myrrh mixed with vinegar wine. He came to taste death for us so that he might die the death that we deserve, so that he could take our place. The myrrh was given in representation of the sacrifice that Jesus would endure. It proclaimed his suffering, even as the drops of blood that are pictured when myrrh is collected. The gold represented Jesus sovereignty as our king, the fragrance frankincense represented Jesus divinity as our high priest, and the myrrh represents Jesus humanity as our suffering savior. They gave the perfect gifts to give to the one who was going to be over all and willingly lay down his life for us. The wise men came and worshiped. Now what I find most disturbing in this whole story is the wise men come to Herod and to the chief priests and the scribes and they go and they look in God's word to find out where the Savior would be born and they weren't willing to travel seven miles to see if it was true. The wise men traveled hundreds of miles because they were given a little bit of information and they wanted to know more. The chief priests had God's word. They had the Old Testament prophecies and yet they were so focused on themselves that they wouldn't travel a short distance to see if it was true. So what about us? What will we do with Jesus? Will we choose to worship him? And honor Him and serve Him? Are we, or will we be satisfied just knowing some of the facts, but not knowing Him in person? The gifts that the wise men brought are also a good representation of what we should give to the Savior. The gift of myrrh is a gift of sacrifice. It represents the most important thing that we can give to Jesus ourselves. If you can't remember a time when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, I may urge you to begin this new year by simply calling on the name of Jesus and say, Lord, I want to know you. Save me. I want to know more about you. I see how prophecy points to you. I see what you did, the life that you lived, the miracles that you did. I see these things revealed. I want to know more. And so would you just meet me where I am right now? I want to trust you. The gift of self. Frankincense also calls us to another gift. It is the gift of service. Just as Jesus intercedes for us continually, he calls us to be his hands and feet in serving his work and his purpose. And finally, the gift of substance, the reason why we have offerings ultimately is an expression of worship because worship and giving are so intermingled they cannot be separated. We give of what God has given to us because he owns it all. And it is an expression of love And trust. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. And Lord, thank you for the example of the wise men that, though they only had a small amount of information compared to how much information we have in your word, they were willing to come and worship you and to find out more. They were eager to know you. Lord, help us to follow their example and to recognize you for who you truly are, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord Jesus, help us to bow before you and worship you and trust you this day. And Lord, let that become the defining quality of who we are in 2017. We'll begin to identify ourselves, not by what we do, not by where we're from, but by the one that we worship, as belonging completely to you, Lord Jesus. And then, Lord, would you help us to truly become your hands and feet here in this city, to show others your love, Lord, to proclaim the truth of who you are so that your presence may shine in the darkness. Lord, help us to love you and worship you with all that we are. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.